Well, grab your Bibles and go to the book of Titus, if you will. I'm going through the book of Titus at home, and uh, the pastor's my boss while I'm here. I submit to him, and he's told me, he said, you, you look for something you've preached recently that's fresh on your heart, and just preach that. And I thought, well, okay, this is the last sermon I preached at my church, so I'm going to preach it for you. Titus is a young understudy of the Apostle Paul, like Timothy. He um, has been commissioned, if you will, by Paul to go to this island, the Greek island of Crete. And literally in chapter 1, Paul tells him, I want you to go there and straighten those churches out. That's what his assignment is. Uh, set things straight. It's a word that you would set a bone with, but literally you could call it straighten things out. I don't know about you, but when I was a boy, sometimes one of my parents would say, I'm going to straighten you out. Does that work in Texas? Do y'all get that? And they straightened me out. And um, I had to have a lot of straightening, I guess, through my life. But nevertheless, that's basically what Titus is doing. The, the churches had a lot of false teaching coming in, a lot of people who were opposed to sound doctrine, people who were opposed to Titus. And so it was a mess. Uh, I think we sung a while ago about enemies from within and enemies from without. Well, they had it all. There, and by the way, this, this was a startling thing to me. I, I was converted out of agnosticism as a 19-year-old. And when I joined a Baptist church, you have to join a Baptist church in Alabama because that's all we got. You know, they're just everywhere. And I joined a Baptist church and some good people in that loved me, etc. But I, I thought the enemies of the church, Pastor, were these, all these people from outside who wore devil suits and worship Satan. And there's some of those. But I found out that just like Paul tells Timothy over and over, now Titus over and over, a lot of your problem is going to be within the professing church. And so he had to get him ready for dealing with people on the outside who would be opponents of God and his church and people on the inside that are opponents of God and his church. And so, so sort of tongue-in-cheek, when Titus got the commission from Paul to go to the island of Crete, I can see Titus saying, oh, my goodness, Paul, are you sure? I mean, Crete was a wild and woolly place, an ungodly place. And it hadn't had a lot of good leadership because Paul couldn't stay there long. And it just kind of, the church has been kind of going on on their own. So he tells Titus, go to Crete. Let's get these churches straightened out. They had women problems. They had men problems. They had family problems. They had doctrinal problems. They had all kinds of problems. And uh, then as you're there, you appoint elders in every church, in every city, and let's see if we can't get this thing on the right track. Now, the brilliant thing about God's Word is the truths that applied to Titus, as Paul's writing this letter to him and guiding his ministry on Crete, apply to us today. So while it's mainly aimed at Titus and at pastors or elders, these truths apply to all of us, okay? And what I've entitled the exposition of these two verses is... A faithful pastor in a godless world. A faithful pastor in a godless world. Roman numeral one, let's notice the plan. Paul very simply says, Titus, here's the plan of how you're to live out your faithfulness in this godless culture as you're somewhat pastoring these churches until you appoint pastors and overseeing them. Let's look at the whole section together. Verses seven and eight, Titus chapter two. In all things, show yourself an example of good deeds with purity in doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that to the end that the opponent will be put to shame, 
having nothing bad to say about us. Now, it's daunting in a way that when they first get started and Titus is reading this letter, Paul says, the opponent, like, it's not going to be if you'll have opponents. It's not going to be if you'll have opposition to sound doctrine and to what I call biblically faithful methods in the church. You're going to have it, Titus, but there's a way you can conduct yourself to win the day for the glory of God and the good of the church. All right, Roman number one, as I said, the plan, sub point A is, first of all, Titus says, I mean, Paul says, Titus, you're going to have to live right. And the order Paul writes, the, or lists these things is the order I'm following. I would have probably shifted the order around, but I'm not God and I didn't write the scripture. So we'll submit to the order here. How about that? First of all, live right. And we see that in the first part of verse 7. In all things, show yourself an example of good deeds. In all things. In other words, live right. In all things, be an example of good deeds. You know, one hallmark aspect of Christianity is the transformation of the heart. We live out of the transformation of the inner man. God has changed our core being. As the Puritans would say, our affections changed. We have been changed so that we now treasure and desire the things of God and less and less treasure and desire the world. Not perfect yet. We're still in the sanctification process. But that's what we're on, changed from the inside out. So if you're changed from your core being, that means all things in your life should be changed. That's why he writes to Titus, in all things. Don't compartmentalize your life like, well, I live for God over here and I follow biblical truths here. But now in my business life, you know, you got to do things different. I don't really follow Christian principles there. And my social life, well, kind of halfway in between. And then, then my home life, no, we don't compartmentalize in Christianity. Christianity infuses the totality of our being, or it's not the real thing. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. He's been created anew by the regenerating power of the Spirit of God under the ministry of the gospel. And his heart has been changed. All things passed away. The way I look at things, my values, my priorities, all old things passed away. And behold, all things have become new. So, so this obliterates the concept of this compartmentalization that we sometimes see, and I particularly don't like uh, pie diagrams of a pe person's life, like one slice of the pie is my social life, and one slice of pie is my work life, and one slice is my home life. It's okay if you use that. I'm not saying it's wrong by any means, but it really doesn't speak to what Christianity is. Christianity is like the, the nuclear core of, a, of maybe a, a, a molecule, and it fuses out its energy into the totality of all of those areas. So Christianity is to flavor the totality of our lives. It's not one of the things we are. It is totally what we are. In other words, your work life is Christian work life. Your school life is to be Christian school life. Your social life is to be Christian social life. Your home life is to be Christian home life. Or Jesus is Lord of your work life. And Jesus is Lord of your social life. And Jesus is Lord of school life. And Jesus is Lord of home life. Amen? Now, are we, have we arrived at that? No, but that should be our humbled heart spirit. And when we find ourselves slipping, we're repenters. As I told the earlier group, I actually learned this phrase in Romania. I was in there ministering at the end of Ceausescu's communist uh, tyrannical regime. 
And the Baptist churches there said, we had to forget the word Christian. It meant a lot of different things. So we begin to call our members repenters. When you got saved, you didn't just repent, you became a repenter. And that means in the totality of your life, as the Spirit of God and the Word of God convicts you, you repent again and repent again and repent. You see, repentance is a gift of grace. You, repentance is a gift of God that a lot of people don't have. It's a part of the regeneration. And so that's why you come to church on Sunday. You're in here today, you get repented back up to where you ought to be. And one of the old, five, I've had a few comments about my southern style of preaching. I didn't know I had a style of preaching, but I've heard a few comments today about my southern style of preaching. And uh, uh, you hadn't been around long because there are some old-fashioned prairie stem winders in southeast Texas, by the way. <laughs> uh, so, but anyway, I forgot what I was going to say. That's what happens when you preach two messages on Sunday morning. My brain's tired. Uh, no doubt, here, here, here Titus is on the island of Crete, and one of the characteristics, well, let's say the hallmark characteristic of false teachers, they're called the opponent in this text, is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. They parade through the earth their virtue. They parade through the earth. We know the way men ought to live and how to care for and love each other, be compassionate, be fair, be equitable. We have all these words today, but they're, they're rank hypocrites. They never follow through. And so when he tells Titus, now Titus, in all things show yourself an example, he means in contrast to what's common in a wicked place like Crete, they're hypocrites and inconsistent with their virtues are their pronounced virtues and their pronounced goodness. But as a Christian, pronounce your truth, but Titus, in all things, be an example of it also. For example, just to, to show you the parallel, we, we sometimes think, well, you know, it was one way in that day and that's a new way today. No, it's not. The problems they faced in Crete, in Rome, in Corinth, in Ephesus are basically in principle the same challenges we, we face today. Some things may be a little more extreme here and there, but it's the same type stuff. For example, do we not have people parading through our country today, glorying in their virtue and their goodness, but they are rank hypocrites? Just a few examples. All of this crowd that wants to save us. You know, everybody wants to be a savior. Have you found that out? Everybody's clamoring. Oh, we're going to save the planet. The planet is overheating. Well, that's kind of been scientifically refuted. So, okay, it's not overheating. It's just changing. Well, folks, the climate's changed since the beginning of time. So they're going to get on their jets, these high up muckety-mucks, and they're going to fly to some place in Europe, some posh resort, and they're going to tell the rest of us, because they're elites, how we can save ourselves from this climate calam calamity that's upon us while they're leaving this giant carbon footprint with these jets they're flying around the country in. What they mean is, now as long as the rest of you don't do that, we're going to be okay. Y'all need to drive your electric cars. Just make sure it don't get very cold because you're going to get stuck at the charging station with all the other guys who own the te Teslas. And I'm not against electric cars. I just think it's ridiculous to have one. But no, I'm not against it. <laughs> if it works for you, praise the Lord. But it's just a lie. They don't work that good. I have a, a little farm in Tennessee 40 miles away. And if I bought an electric truck and put my four-wheeler behind that truck, I would only have enough battery power to get to the farm and plug the doggone thing in for the next six hours to get back home. How is that? Look, how's that saving the planet? That's making me insane. That's not what God has called us to. Here's what I'm saying. They're so inconsistent. You guys can't burn any fossil fuels, but we're going to do it. 
and on and on we keep. Just a couple more examples. The feminists, for example. The feminists today can find nothing good about our Western Christian heritage. Nothing. But yet they find nothing wrong with Islam, which is horrible in its treatment of women and their daughters. Horrible. Oppressive. Hypocrites. They pray themselves as the deliverers of these oppressed women and the most oppressed women in the world are those under Islamic rule. I have nothing bad to say about them. The open borders group. Have y'all heard about the border and people come across the border? I don't know if in Texas it was as big as it is in Alabama. I think we're sending people over here to fight with you guys to control the border. I don't know. But nevertheless, it's open borders crowd and, and they, they, they said, we just, we got to be loving and compassionate. It sounds good up front. There's a way that seems wise unto a man, the Bible says, but then there are the ways of death. Sounds so open and compassionate until you take a couple of busloads of those illegal immigrants and put them on Martha's Vineyard and unload them. And before dark, they've loaded them back up and shipped them off to somebody else's town. Hypocrites. Hypocrites. It just, it's been that way. But that was the dominant theme of the false professors and false teachers and opponents of the true church in ancient Crete. They were, known, they were just hypocrites. So he's saying, Titus, you be different than that. You be consistent in what you teach and preach. So I'm just making my point. And just one other one real quick because I hate communism. The, the, the Stalin and Lenin take over ancient Russia and tell them that our whole banner is we are delivering the oppressed. We're going to murder 60 million, million of you oppressed people in the process hypocrisy to the nth degree. But Titus, Paul writes, you be an example in all things. Let there be some fidelity and consistency in your witness. The church, let me charge you fresh this morning. Let's be what we are. And just on a very practical note, you're in a work, work, work a day world, family life, school life. You're going to blow it sometimes. You're going to offend somebody. You're going to sin against somebody. But you know what you ought to do? Be humble. And go to that person and say, you know, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ and I blew it. The way I talked to you was wrong. Would you forgive me? And I guarantee you after that, they'll love and honor your Christ more and you by failing and getting it right and being humble than if you never did it at all. Are y'all hearing me this morning? Isn't God good like that? Because if you can't ask each other to forgive each other and go on, then there's no future for any relationship, especially in our marriage relationships. That's just a part of it. Well, ancient Crete was bad. For Titus 1, 12 and 13, Paul writes, One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Christians are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this reason, reprove them severely so they may be sound in the faith. So Paul gives this generalization of the wickedness of the Christian culture. And he says to rebuke them, that means a lot of that's come into the church. And then he's cleaning up. It's no fun to clean up a church that's ungodly. You know what? That's a tough, tough job. And Titus has got to do it all over the island. But he's to start with the first thing of making sure that he is living right. In all things, show yourselves an example. Well, number two, not only live right, be light and salt in the earth and be consistent. But in the plan, he says, Titus, you're going to have to preach right. You're going to have to preach right. And if we look at it there again in verse 7. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds, that's live right, with purity in doctrine. Now, the phrase here in the original language indicates that Paul's probably not talking about 
the body of doctrine we hold to, or what Jude would call the faith once for all delivered to the saints. We might call it the evangelical faith or the Baptist faith maybe or whatever, Bible doctrine. He's not talking about that right now. He's talking about the style or the motives and the manner of Titus's preaching and teaching. He's saying in the motive of your preaching and in your style of preaching, make sure it's of God. The idea here is make sure that the motive behind your preaching is the glory of God and the advancement of God's kingdom, not the advancement of yourselves. And that really was a contrast that Titus was to have with the false teachers in Crete who claimed to be Christian men, who claimed to be Christian teachers, but at the end of the day, they were using the church for their own exaltation and advancement, not having the pure motives to preach for the glory of God and the building up of the church. When he says purity in doctrine, the word purity has the idea of an uncorruptedness. It's the idea of being the opposite of soundness. In other words, be sound in your manner and in your style by being unselfish and God-centered and not being about yourself. You know, it's, it's quite easy for preachers and especially young pastors to have the temptation on them to use the pulpit for personal popularity or for self-advancement, but this must be caught and repented of over and over and over again. Because that's not what the false teachers are doing. That's not, Titus, what your opponents are doing. They're all about using the church for themselves. And then in, his, in this, this, this motive and in the manner of his, his preaching, he adds another descriptive at the end of verse 7, dignified. Purity in doctrine, your, your motive and your manner, and then dignified. The word dignified means a seriousness. The word dignified means a reverence or a respect. In other words, your ministry is not to be marked by frivolous things and silly things and comedy and amusement. Uh, not that there's nothing wrong with some humor in preaching and there's nothing wrong with some lightness here and there. I'm not saying that. But so many of our pulpits today are marked by silliness. The worldliness that's come into the church is quite astounding. And I, I say the word church kind of broadly there. I don't know if we can call a lot of these places churches anymore, honestly. I think Dr. John MacArthur refers to some of them as non-churches now, and I think I would agree with that. I mean, you've got some of the worst right here in Texas. Some of these great, big, huge congregations look like six flags over Jesus or something. It's just a big carnival. It's just a big carnival. You know what that is? That's losing your dignity. We ought to be reverent, have a respect, a dignity concerning ourselves in preaching and delivering the Word. And if I might get on a hobby horse of mine here, I think the way a man dresses when he preaches matters. Now, now the dress isn't everything, but it's not nothing either. And uh, I was listening to a brother the other day on, online somewhere, and his message had a good point. But he was like wearing an old faded out t-shirt, cut off shorts with holes in them, flip-flops, and, and I thought, <laughs> we have a county next to my county called Franklin County, Alabama. And Franklin County, Alabama is where you want to go if you want to go to a chicken fight on Saturday night. Y'all got those in Texas? Don't act like that don't happen here. I mean, they're more rural and redneck than my county, and that's saying something, by the way. A man shouldn't get up to preach like he just came from a goat auction in Franklin County, Alabama. Amen? If you go to a banker or a lawyer and he walks out with cut-off blue jeans that are faded out and flip-flops and a T-shirt, you're going to say, you don't have respect for your profession. I think I need to go talk to somebody else. 
I don't know if I want to leave my money with you. You're probably smoking dope on Saturday night or something. Well, you look. Now, that's what we, is that not the truth? So there ought to be a dignity, and dress is a part of that. It's not everything, but it's a part of it. So he says, Titus, on the island of Crete, a lot of bad stuff happening. A lot of bad things have gotten into the churches. You have to clean it up. But number one, you make sure you're consistently living right. Number two, make sure you're preaching right with the right motives, the right manner and style. Now, number three, make sure you believe right. I'd have put believe earlier. Paul lists it last. Make sure you believe right. In verse 8, he says, sound in speech. The word sound there means life-giving or healthy. What is it that gives life when you preach the doctrines of God, when you preach the doctrines of the Bible? So this is referring to that body of doctrine we hold to, that faith once for all delivered to the saints. It refers to the content of our preaching. We dealt with the motives and manner of preaching, but here Paul speaks directly to that content. We are not to let go of the truths of God laid down in the sacred text, which can never change. Never change. They hold us. Amen? We're not to be like the Roman Catholic system where the Pope comes out recently and says, well, God's changed his mind. Now we can bless homosexual couples. Well, we should love homosexuals. We should have grace for them and reach out to them in love. But we cannot affirm them either. That's not God's role for us. And the Pope said it this way. He said, we cannot turn away anyone who comes to God. Now, if you're just a sentimentalist, if you just think in your emotions, that sounds good. But we've got this right here to correct our emotions when they're wrong. Well, you don't go by your emotions. You don't live by your emotions. You live by the truth of the Word of God and let your emotions catch up with truth. Can I get amen there? You know, we live in a culture today that's run by emotional women and, and effeminate men. That's right. That's where we are. Instead of men of God that stand on this book, come what may. And I've got news for the Pope. God does reject those who come to him if they do not come in repentance toward God and faith in Jesus Christ. He rejects all who try to come to him. Ask Cain about that. Amen? Cain came to God, did he not? But God rejected his offering because his offering was about him and his work, not about God's sacrifice through Jesus Christ. So that's my point. Titus, Paul writes, you've got to believe these things and hold to this. Because you see, here's going to be the problem. All of this stuff had gotten into these Christian churches. And a pastor's very tempted to kind of start bending the corners on sound doctrine so he can keep the crowd. Let me tell you something. Every true church, you've got a 25-year track record here. I know a little of it. You never have a solid church that hasn't had quite a bit of falling away. Quite a bit of those who decide, I don't think I need to be a part of this. It don't mean they're all evil or bad people. A lot of them are. doesn't mean they all are. But that's always the case. So Titus is going to be tempted to kind of, kind of not stand where he needs to stand on the old doctrines of the faith to kind of keep people happy. And Paul writes to Titus and says, no, you must stand on the old doctrines of the faith. That's what he means sound in your speech, sound in your belief, sound in your teaching. All right, that's Roman numeral one. I have so much to say, but I don't have time. But you're not like the earlier crowd because we can stay here till one thirty-two o'clock. See, there's nobody else coming. All right? I appreciate your spirit. Thank you for that affirmation. We won't be long. Roman two, here's the plan, Titus. Live right, preach right, believe right. Now, secondly, here's the fruit. The fruit of a faithful pastor in a godless culture. 
Now, I'm going to give you three subpoints, but they're all really components of one fruit. And here's how I'm going to outline it from the text. A, the opponents can only cause you superficial wounds. Titus is going to be opponents if you're building the true church. Satan hates the true church. You know why? Look, the church is the centerpiece of God's glory and God's purposes. Did you hear that? You as an individual Christian are to glorify God, but even more so as a family of faith, a church, you're to glorify God. That's why Jesus said, all men will know you're my disciples because you live good for me as a single person. No, all men will know you're my disciples by the love you have one for another. It's your, it's your communion of love in Christ that shows the world the truth of God and glorifies God. So Satan hates the church. He's always trying to weasel in and cause problems. So there's always opponents. And that's the, a daunting job of your pastor and elders to keep the guard up. And literally there's times, and I, I've been through so much of this, and I know your pastor has been a, a faithful man of God in this. Literally, he has to take the shepherd's staff and drive out some wolves from time to time. That's what Paul inspects, what Paul tells Titus to do. But the wounds they cause you in attacking you and undermining you and discrediting you, Titus, as a true man of God, understand they're only superficial. I get this from the phrase, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach. It means all the attacking accusations, Titus, they're going to put against you will not stick. They won't, people might believe them a little bit, but they won't last. They'll just roll off. So it's only going to cause a superficial wound. And I can tell you something. When people first attack you as a minister and a leader and you're trying to do what's right, it hurts. And you think the end of the world's coming. You think everybody's believing the false accusations. And you just have to live long enough to realize, no, there are a lot of quiet people out there that didn't believe it. They were just watching what you were going to do about it. You know, when you reform a church to biblical health, an overwhelming majority of our evangelical and Baptist churches are very biblically unhealthy. A guy goes in there as a faithful pastor. He tries to reform it to biblical health. He's going to have all of this opposition. Here's what happens. The people that are against you are loud but the army of people who are really with you are quiet because they've never seen those reforms before. They, they like it, but they just had not seen it, so they're quiet for a while. And you're going to have to stay with it. And that's, that's one reason why when Paul writes Timothy that he left in Ephesus and Paul writes Titus that he left in Crete, he's just constantly encouraging them to stand and stand. Don't run away and don't be fearful and don't be timid. Don't let them look down on your youthfulness, he tells Timothy. Because it can get to you if you're not careful. So you'll be beyond reproach so that their missiles and fiery darts do not find a true full landing place. They'll only cause superficial wounds. Now, I've had pastors tell me we, we have what we call anchored in truth ministries, which we kind of set that up because pastors were requesting of us, would you help us learn how you did what you did in Muscle Shoals, Alabama? And so many of them did that. We, we just started a ministry to try to mentor and help guys, be an encouragement to them. And, and, and through those years, they would come into difficult days like Titus was facing where people were opposing them or undermining them. And they'd say, Brother Jeff, it's not working. It's, they're, they're gaining the, the, the hold of the church. It's, it's not going to work. And here's what I say. It hadn't been enough time yet. You just grab yourself by the nap of the neck, study yourself full, go get in that pulpit and preach again and preach again. Because their wounds will only be superficial in the long haul. B, under the fruit of having a faithful pastor in an ungodly culture is 
your opponents will be brought to shame. Notice how he words it there in verse 8. Your opponents will be brought to shame so that the opponent will be put to shame. It's an interesting phrase. It's a passive verb here, which means the, per, the, the person acts on themselves. In other words, they themselves will come to the point where they will say, I'm ashamed that I worked against Titus. I'm ashamed that I tried to undermine my pastor Titus because he's a real deal. I may not agree with his doctrine. I may not want to join his church, but, but I do respect him. And they'll come to shame. Isn't that a powerful thing? Titus, if you'll live right, preach right, believe right, don't quit, there'll be a time when a significant number of your opponents will shame themselves for ever opposing you. I've been pastoring 43 years in the same place. I've seen this. I know enough about your pastor's testimony. He's seen this. Gets me, it gets me excited. I want to act like a Baptist or something, you know, and shout or something. It's just... It's just so good. Don't you love it when God's word works and you experience it? Thank you for that amen. I need those every now and then, you know. <laughs> uh, hurrying on, but let me, can, can, I, can I ask you a question? Whatever happened to cross-bearing? I'm sorry, you don't get to be here in southeast Texas and just have a Christianity that fits the culture. God didn't give you biblical truths that are going to be hunky-dory in the factory, in the office place. You may lose your job to honor Jesus Christ. You may be the laughing stock of the school. I don't know. When my daughters were in school, we had taught them the principle of Christian courtship. We're not legalistic about it, but just the general principles that we don't need to date like the world dates if you think your 13-year-old daughter needs to go off with a 16, 17-year-old boy on a five-hour date in an automobile, you are insane. You've lost your mind in Jesus' name. <laughs> so we taught, let's do things in groups and let's don't have a whole lot of this alone stuff. Anyway, my daughter turned 16, sophomore year in college. Her classmates turned 16. They start dating and doing things. They say, why aren't you dating anybody? She says, well, we just don't do it that way. And they felt kind of convicted by her life. And they begin to ostracize her. She began to eat by herself in the lunchroom at school. And she had a godly teacher who went over to her one day while she's eating her lunch by herself. And that teacher said, Katie Lee, I, I know what's happening. I see what they're doing. But you see, seem okay with it. You seem like, well, I, this is fine. She said, how are you able to do that? And she said, I've seen my father suffer for the truth. And I can too. I had, but Jim, I had, I, Ken, I had no idea that my oldest daughter was watching me going through the suffering of the church when I had so many opposite. Op and it was building her faith that she can stand with God. We, get, we pastors get so many blessings we don't see coming. And that's my point, that cross-bearing and facing a challenge and facing things that hurt you and, 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 and cause you grief, but standing and bearing that cross is normative for our Christianity. And we know that whatever they throw at us, it's a superficial way. And by the way, by the time she became a senior in high school, those very girls loved her, honored her, and respected her. God is so good, is he not? Jesus said, Matthew 5, 11, blessed are you when people insult you, not if they insult you, 
when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Folks, when we're standing on the truth of scriptures and people attack us, they're attacking Jesus. And he says, it's going to happen some. But here's what's good. Here's what I love about it. It may happen out there in the workplace. It may happen in the neighborhood. It may happen in the office or in the school. But you get to come together on Sunday with other crazy people like you. And you refuel each other and re-encourage each other and lock arms together. We're going to go back out there again. Now, don't be obnoxious. Don't be one of these people that run around condemning everybody like John the Baptist. You're not John the Baptist. But I just mean there's times you have to stand, amen? We get to come back together and refuel and encourage and strengthen each other. Okay. See, another aspect of the fruit. He said, whatever they throw at you, it's just going to be a super, it doesn't feel like it, but it's not going to kill you. Matter of fact, your flesh will tell you their attacks are killing you, but your faith will say it's curing you. You ever, you ever understood that when you stand under the fire, your heart stays warm? It's close to Jesus. You get close to Jesus when you're being attacked for your faith. So it's only a superficial wound. It's not going to hurt you. Secondly, it's, it's, just, it's, it's, it's not going to come to anything. And then thirdly, their oppositions. Well, I'm sorry, the second thing is they will come to shame. They will come to that place where they shame themselves. Did I skip that completely? That's what happens when you preach two, two things at once one morning. They will come to that place where they shame themselves. He said, so they will be put to shame, the text tells us. And they act on themselves to say, I'm ashamed I did that. And then the third thing here, their oppositions will cease. The last part of verse 8 says, having nothing bad to say about us. You think, well, boy, at one time they had a lot of bad to say. Yeah, but over time, because you lived right, you acted right, there was fidelity and consistency in your life, they decided, I'm ashamed I ever tried to oppose that man and that woman, and I'm not doing it anymore. God has powerfully done that in my life so many times. I think about Joseph in Egypt. There Joseph is a Jewish boy. He's in Egyptian slavery. He, he's in a culture that would have nothing good to say about Jewish religion and Jewish law. So he's surrounded by opponents. He becomes the slave of Potiphar. And the Bible tells us because Joseph was consistent and faithful, here's what it says. So Joseph found favor in the sight, in his sight, that's his master, and became his personal servant. He made him overseer over all of his house and everything that he owned because his master saw that Joseph was with the Lord and the Lord caused all things he did to prosper. He found favor. God will bring it to pass that the very people who once opposed you will begin to favor you. It's a powerful principle. Look at it there again in verse 8. So the opponent will be put to shame having nothing bad to say about us. Proverbs 16, 7 reminds us, when a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. That's not an absolute promise, but a general truth that a considerable number of those who would undermine you, criticize you, condemn you for your convictions, for your love for Christ, will come to the conclusion, I'm ashamed that I said the things about you that I said. And now I favor you. Our Lord Jesus is such an example of this principle of his life being so consistent he brought men to shame about opposing him. 
our Lord is hanging on the cross. He hangs between two thieves who are vehemently, caustically accusing him and demeaning him. The Bible says the earth is darkened for three hours because God the Father and God the Son are performing something no man can enter into. And in that darkness, Jesus cries out with a loud voice, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. And he's already said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. But there's a Roman centurion down at the foot of that cross. And he's watching the way Jesus Christ dies. He's, he watched the way he took all of the vile accusations and chanting of the crowd and cursings and mockings. And he heard him say, Father, forgive them. And the Bible records that this centurion, when he saw how Jesus died, began praising God and said, certainly this man was righteous. What's happened? He turned on himself and said, I'm ashamed that I did this to this, this righteous man. And the Bible says, we're not Jesus, of course, but the same principle will work for us. But thinking about that, you know, really shaming ourselves and being ashamed of what we are and saying, but God, you're righteous, that, that's really just repentance. Repentance is turning on yourself, saying, I'm the sinner. I'm the one that's lacking. I'm the unrighteous one. I'm the one that's full of pride and selfishness. And then when you come to God that way and look to Jesus, you'll find arms like this. Sinners are the only ones he's looking for. The unrighteous are the only ones he's looking for because there are no other kind. And maybe for some of you sitting here this morning, you need to turn on yourself and say, I agree with the Bible. I have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I agree with the Bible. No one is righteous. No, not one. That's me. I'm just full of myself and full of pride, full of self-serving. But, oh, Christ, if you would take me, save me. And I promise you, you turn to him like that, he will save you. He is faithful and a loving Savior. Paul writes to Titus, and Titus, it's a, it's a tough assignment. It's uh, it's a tough place. The churches are in bad shape, but you, you live right. You preach right. You hold to the old doctrines of the faith. Don't veer from it. And there's fruit coming that even many of those who hate you and oppose you will come to the point of having nothing bad to say about you. That's a good word for us. Let's pray together, all right? Heavenly Father, as we bow together this morning, we are so grateful for the wisdom of the Word of God. We're humbled before it because it's so wonderful and good. Most of all, Father, we are thankful that our Savior lived this truth because he, he taught the truth, He lived the truth, He was the truth, and the truth He bore and didn't veer from and the innocence that nobody could bring a claim of sin against Him caused Him to bring others to see their own sin and turn on themselves. And sir, ma'am, young person, mom or dad here this morning, have you turned to Christ? Have you really turned to Christ and turned on yourself? Just tell him this morning, oh, Christ, I'm a sinner. Christ, I'm unrighteous. Would you cleanse me? Would you have me? I promise you, he's saying, yes, I will. I will forgive you and I will love you and take you as mine. Oh, Father, would you do that work no man can do? Pierce these precious hearts, encourage these dear people, and glorify your name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.